0: Our second message this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled "Following Paul." Matthew. Good afternoon. We all stand dry. So uh, this time last week come. Um, There was a a crazy Dennis family all out in the rain, and uh, it was a a fitting memorial to um, a dear family member, uh, Renee and Kim and Trevor's grandfather, and so that's where we were last week. And then uh, Pentecost uh, Sunday, we visited with our friends in Wichita, and they say, howdy. And uh, we had a a great crew there, a lot of visitors, and uh, they also were a little moist due to the weather. I wanted to thank Ron, he's just left the room, but I just really appreciated his song selection today. Beautiful hymns, rich in meaning, and uh, they actually took me back to the start of what I'm gonna talk about today. I don't think it's too strong a statement for me to say that many of us here have, through our Christian journey, come to dislike or perhaps even detest some or many of the religious practices that we once participated in. Now that sounds like an awfully strong statement. Those practices are likely to be every bit as varied as all the church traditions that we grew up in. For me, don't tell Curtis. As you know, I was a Baptist. I grew up, for the most part, Baptist. It was through the Baptist church, through Sunday school, through the youth programs, and eventually as we graduated into full church services through the sermons that I heard and began to to get a knowledge of God, to get a knowledge of Jesus Christ, to get an understanding, albeit perhaps in a more limited way, of his plan. That is where I learned these basic things. Now, the purpose of my next passage here is is not to self aggrandize. This is just my experience. And I want to share it with you so you know where I'm coming from in this message. I remember quite distinctly that after I had decided to get baptized in in the Baptist church, that we went through, um, I want to say six weeks of baptism counseling, or maybe even a little longer. And it was very involved. And there was coursework and there was Things you had to answer. And uh, once a week, the pastor and myself and a few others that were getting baptized would go through the work uh, for that week. They were serious about understanding and making sure that you understood what you were getting into. And I remember that after a period of time, I guess, the pastor had shared our conversations. And the fact that I was the one answering all the questions... (laughs) And um, I was the one that seemingly had an unusual, if you want to call it that, understanding of the word. Or at least I learned to answer the questions. And so probably to be encouraging, this was spreading around the church. And, and several deacons and church members would, would say to me, maybe you should think about the ministry. Maybe this should be a path that you would engage in. Maybe this is your calling. And, you know, I kind of have to laugh. I'm 16 years old. Everything that I knew came from God. There was nothing special about me. And I find it bizarre. I found it bizarre that, that others didn't know the answers to these questions. Yes, at 16, I was a youth leader. Yes, I was involved in the music ministry, which explains a lot. I was also, by 16, giving devotional lessons to peers on a Friday night youth club. And that was something that was encouraged in that church because, of course, who can reach the young but the young? And so they tried to leverage that whenever they could. I had a knowledge and an understanding of the Bible. And I suppose had my life not taken a huge change in a spiritual direction, had I not been introduced to other insights into the word of God, I might have gone down the road. I might have been sponsored by that church to enter the ministry, to go to seminary and follow that path. It's possible. I could have found myself Again, don't let Curtis know. I could have found myself a Baptist preacher somewhere. And I suppose that could have been rewarding. That could have been a blessing. But when I think about that road not traveled, and we probably all have those, the path that we didn't go down, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul and his life and his journey. Because in and among the truth of God that I was learning, because there is truth taught in Baptist churches, in amongst that truth, there was error. There was the influence of the enemy over time influencing doctrine and theology, as we know, and you can take a lesson from church history and see how well he did that. But there were practices that were complete fiction or perhaps in some ways what Paul would describe them as the traditions of men. And they were, of course, taught as commandments. In my experience, things like Christmas and Easter and the Trinity and the immortal soul and once saved, always saved and, of course, that the law is done away with and nailed to the cross. These were the kinds of things that I proved through the Word of God were just not true. These were the traditions of men. You might have the same experience. You might have had the exact same experience. Anybody want to join me in professing they were once Baptists? See, We outnumber you Curtis, I'm sorry. But we have very different experiences. And you know what? Even if you grow up in the Church of God, I bet you there were some traditions of men that were taught once upon a time right? as commandments. Last Sunday being one of them, right? Because once upon a time it was Monday. How easily traditions of men can become doctrines in churches. In groups of people. For Paul, as we know, it was a little different. Yet at the same time, it was really familiar. Take a look at uh, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evildoers. Beware of the mutilation. The mutilation? What are these, zombies? Well, as you know, there were something called Christian Pharisees, right? Believing Pharisees. They could not deny that Jesus was the Christ, And these guys roamed around the countryside with their long knives. Looking for men that they could mutilate. They were practicing circumcision. So that you could be in Christ. That You must be circumcised to be in Christ. Paul treats this as a tradition of man. He says, for we... Of the circumcision, who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. But see how they stack up to Paul, right? And his credentials, circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuted the church. You want to boast? In the flesh? Concerning righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted for loss. Or counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence... Of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. As trash. To be thrown out. That I may gain Christ. And be found in him. Not having my own righteousness which is from the law. But that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul, like us, many of us, in differing ways perhaps, was completely immersed At one time in the practices and the religion of his childhood. Of his raising. Of the community that he was in. As I mentioned earlier, maybe we're at the opposite end of the spectrum from Paul. Maybe we came from absolutely no law at all. And he came from laws magnified with the traditions of man built on top of it. Paul was a Pharisee, a practitioner of the law to its fullest extent, and had all of the credentials. He was a physical descendant of Abraham, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, blameless under the law, and yet, by his own, admi- uh, by his own admitting, he was a murderer, a lawbreaker, an enemy of God and God's people. In Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, we find a very familiar story. Paul, or as his name was then, Saul. And it's interesting, we go from one Saul today to another Saul. He says, Still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Saul goes to the high priest Give me authority, give me documents. I want to hunt these so called Christians, or whatever they're called, followers of the way, I want to hunt them down wherever they are. I want to look for them in Damascus. And if I find them, I want to arrest them, whether men or women, so that he can bring them bound to Jerusalem. What an image! What an image! Paul wants to go down there and find these men and women just practicing their faith, not hurting anybody. And he wants to put them in chains and march them 130 miles across the wilderness to do what? To bring them in front of a a trial, a Jewish court, a corrupt one at that, one that has already been daily passing judgment on innocent men and women. Just as they did to Stephen. This man, Paul, was fierce. He was murderous. And he had a passion to destroy these people. And he was marked, as we know, for the most radical conversion in history. From this position against God and against his his people. And you know, even now when you think about the change that happens over the the, the life of Paul in, in really 24 hours, or maybe four days, it makes your head spin. Imagine being that person, leaving Jerusalem with one attitude and faith and arriving. In Damascus, with a completely opposite view. That's what Paul is about to experience. It says, As he journeyed, he came near to Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground, and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Lord, who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. What kind of chill went down his spine? Blood running cold. <laughs> this guy is real. And of course we get a clue there that he is he's already troubled, isn't he? Because he's seeing the faith of men and women, normal average men and women. That have in Jesus Christ. And he's seeing them as he's torturing them and hunting them. And his conscience. It's crying out. But that moment when he actually hears Jesus' voice. Radically changing his life. God himself. Jesus. The one that he is trying to deny. The one that he is wanting to hate. And work against is now talking to him in glory and power. So he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the man who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. What goes through your mind? You know, have you ever found yourself in, in a a life threatening situation? You know, a car wreck or or Life-threatening situation for a loved one. Or even the loss of a loved one. That intense emotional experience. And he's experiencing that. And the, the moments after that. And the whole thing is running through his mind and the imagery. And the, Did I really hear this right? And yes, I heard it right. And converting his mind. Challenging every, everything he'd been taught. He was blinded, and yet for that first time, he starts to see. Because all the prophecies of the Messiah start slotting in. This isn't just a guy from Galilee, right? He is educated. He has the scriptures in his mind. He is a master at the scriptures. And he's thinking about these things, and he's thinking of the scriptures of the, of the Messiah, and the prophecies, and his role, and what will happen. And now they are starting to click and make sense to him. He's getting converted by the second. And then comes that seminal moment. Not only in the life of Paul, but in the life of the entire church. Because of what he will do. It says in verse 10... Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him. So that he might receive his sight. I just love this passage of the story, the beauty of this event. Because for one, it shows me the astounding grace of God. Because if he was like us, right, Paul would have been just kind of a little smoldering pile of ashes on the road to Damascus. But God says, I am going to turn my biggest enemy and I'm going to make him my champion. What a change. The boldness. Amazing. So, verse 17. And Ananias went his way, entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who has appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me, that you may receive your sight, and be filled with With the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he receives his sight at once. And he arose and was baptized. And so when he had received food he was strengthened. And then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. But you know there's something else going on here. I've always been fascinated by this that's just this cool line in there, isn't there? Go to the street called Straight. It's kind of poetic, of itself, and you kind of wonder about that passage. I mean, I have. Was it accidental? I mean, the street called Straight. Had he already made reservations on you know Hotline.com for this particular hotel? Probably not likely, right? I don't think they had the internet between Damascus and Jerusalem at the time. So they're just going to arrive and they're going to show up at the next place that's available, I'm sure. (coughs) The street called straight. So, I mean, what am I getting at? Well, there's an interesting passage. We find it in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1. Because, you know, I was considering this, this street called Straight, and I was wondering, you know, this, the scriptures that talk about paths being straightened, right? Where is that? Plug it into the Bible software, and out pops the scripture I was thinking of. But I forgot about the first part of this. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, it says, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended. That her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Who was that? We know who that was. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John the Baptist. Where our narrative begins. Where this New Testament narrative begins. Is the one crying in the wilderness. Is it not? Preparing the way. For the Messiah. And then. That work passes of course. To Jesus. As John's ministry ends. And then Jesus, having completed his work of salvation, then set about building his church by spreading the good news through the disciples, through the apostles, and finally through Paul, the last to be added as an apostle. Was it coincidence that the crooked life of Paul, with all of those false practices, Was it coincidence that it was made straight on a street called straight? I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. In verse 4 it says, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And you look at the life of Paul, he certainly did blaze a trail, didn't he? He certainly did smooth out that path. And went about straightening the crooked paths? He became the most prolific of the apostles. He fulfilled the words of Jesus without wavering. The man was just steadfast. He could not be moved. He just persisted to do the work that was set before him. He took the word of God, the gospel to the Gentiles, to kings, governors, all the way to Rome and to Caesar. And it all started on a road to Damascus. And so we come back to where we've started. This reviewing of Paul's life. To Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7. He says, but what things were gained to me. These things I have counted loss for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, as I mentioned before, as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. He was persistent. Almost a little bit of a, not quite a doubt, but just a drive so that he can attain to that resurrection. He didn't want to let his foot off the gas at all. He completed the task. What about us? Because we have loss. You know, I don't think anybody else can be like Paul. He was an exceptional individual. But what losses have we had for Christ? What sacrifices have we given up? Opportunities, maybe, in career, in personal life. What have we laid aside for Christ Have we given up religious practices? Ones that still have emotional tugs and bonds to family or friends. Have we given up a life of sin? Hopefully. Given up that life of temporary pleasures. Do we count those things as rubbish, as something fit only to be thrown to the dogs? Paul did. He, in fact, rejected his entire way of life from before. He changed his name, submitted himself as a servant of God with no home, no family of his own except the brothers and sisters in Christ. Traveled and just poured out his life for the church, for Jesus. Just poured himself out Now, it would be hard to reach the level of Paul. That would be a huge life change. And I don't think we're called to. But we are called in some other ways to be like Paul. We are called to be like Paul as the Spirit of God gives us power. As it directs us, as it opens up opportunities for us to work for the church, for Jesus. To cast off the trappings of that old man. Press toward the goal, as he says in verse 12. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid a hold of me. I just love the imagery that he uses there. He is going to lay hold to the resurrection, to salvation, to eternal life in the same way that Jesus laid a hold of him. Boom! (laughs) Road to Damascus. He's grabbing on tight in the same way that Jesus determined, you are going to work for me. That was his response. Hold on tight. There we go. but I press on, that I may lay a hold of that which Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature... Having this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already obtained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. We can be like Paul like that. We can walk by the same rule. If we're mature if we are maturing on our faith, then we can find a way to be of the same mind. But it's also deliberate, isn't it? We can't just be floating along out here. We can't just come to the social club that is church. This is the body of Christ. And we come here to engage with one another, to grow with one another. Yeah, to sharpen a little bit once in a while. And to do the work of Christ, of the Messiah, of Jesus. The work that John the Baptist began, that Jesus then passed on to Paul. And that Paul, through his writing, passes on to us. And more than that, we have to have the same mind. And that's a challenge. But if we're mature, he says, we can do this. To work toward the same goals as our gifts have been given. To encourage, to support, to not criticize and not pull down. Paul says in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern, for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often... And now tell you in weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. There were those that once walked with them. That once followed the same path. That had the same spirit and now become enemies of Christ. I tell you this with weeping. Whose end is destruction? Whose God is their belly? and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that we may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things to himself. Our citizenship is in heaven. It's a curious phrase. You know, if the trend continues in the world, in this country, and the rapid changes that we see in society, there will come a point when we can no longer claim to be living in a Christian country. Right? Right? In fact, in a recent survey performed by the Pew Research Center, Christianity, which includes, of course, a broad swath of Protestant and Catholic denominations, has fallen among the population from 78.4% to 70.6% from 2007 to 2014. Well, it doesn't sound too bad, right? 70%, still the majority. Well, like I mentioned, this, this is a pretty wide net. So, my question would be, and you're right, Curtis, it's not my place to answer it. But there are nominal Christians, as we know, and there are true believers, as we know. 70% are true believers? I don't think so. Because if that were the case, would you really see the legalization of things that are opposed to every single principle of Christ? Not at all. So what is the percentage of true believers? It might be the reverse. 20, 30 percent? I don't know. I think it would be hard for the, the Pew Research Center to to ask that question. So, At some point we will have to ask ourselves, can we continue to identify with anything that our government and our country does at all? But we need not worry because salvation is not affected by these things. The church was founded in one of the most religiously confused parts of the world and continues its work the church of God is still here he says for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the savior the Lord Jesus Christ our loyalty our fidelity is to Jesus and his kingdom just as it was for Paul And as much as we might love the principles, the founding principles of this country, and we love everything about our country's history and the freedom that we have benefited from and the sacrifice that has been made to bring it about, ultimately, this is not our country. This is not. The kingdom of God. And like Paul. We seek another country. A heavenly country. But you know Paul used his citizenship. As a tool didn't he? He used the facility that he had. For the advancement of the gospel. And so I wonder at what point. Do we become like Paul? Because. It seems more and more we are living in Rome. And maybe at some point in our future, we will appeal to Caesar. And that future may actually be here. Because there are various Christian groups that are opposed to the changes that are going on in society. And they are arguing cases all the way up to the Supreme Court of the United States. Almost to Caesar. Almost. So maybe we will at some point follow in his footsteps quite literally. There is more to this concept of following Paul though because he says copy me, follow me. I'll give you an example. Follow me as I follow Christ. And if, you have, you know, if you're a little uncomfortable with that, don't be. That statement is in the word of God. God is okay with it. And the life of Paul serves as an example for us. So another way in which Paul is an example, and one that is it's challenging, is this notion of being a chameleon. Did you know Paul was a chameleon? We find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, of verse 19. He says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews, I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, That I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law, as without the law. Not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak, I became as weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by some means save some. Now this I do, for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you." Now I mentioned before, Paul was driven. Paul was exceptional. Paul had phenomenal abilities, but the same spirit that guided Paul, that brought Paul to all the, the, the parts of the world that he visited, to all the different communities. To the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles, to the weak, or to the strong, to the kings and the rulers. He was able to customize the message and the gospel of Christ to whoever was listening. Do you realize that? We should try and follow Paul. Paul positioned himself, presented himself in such a way as to appear like his audience, but all the while maintaining the truth. If he was talking to Jews, he used their language. He used their nomenclature. If he was talking to a bunch of computer nerds today, he would use all kinds of words that I understand. Maybe. But if he was talking to the Jews, he appeared as a Jewish theologian. To the Greeks, as one of their philosophers. He Considered his audience. Considered how he could just maybe find a chink in the armor of their mind and start to plant a seed. So what would that look like today? Perhaps he would write it this way. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Americans, I became as an American, which is hard to do, let me tell you. The accent, it's difficult. Maybe it should have been to the Oklahomans as the Oklahomans. (laughs) That's even harder. Y'all. To those who are are children, a child, that I might win the young. To those who are unchurched as without church so that I can win those who are unchurched. As to the weak or the sick or the cast off from society well he would try and bring the word of God to them in a way they could understand. I have become all things to all men that I might by some means save some. And, you know, we, we know that you cannot come to the Son. There's a scripture that says you can't come to the Son unless the Spirit of the Father draw, draw, us, draw us in. But yet Paul seems to think he has a role to play. He seems to think that he should present the gospel unencumbered as much as possible with anything that would turn them away. And so that should be our approach. We're not talking about changing the truth. God's truth is God's truth. It does not change. But how we deliver that truth to the world, the methods we use must change with the conditions we find in the world. Now I mentioned this so I can say specifically that some of the things that I have done, that others have contributed to doing, is to try and do this to maybe add a little extra dimension to our worship services. To maybe make it a little bit more attractive to our young people. To add I don't know, would we want to rewrite some of our literature, our material? Some of that is 50 years old. We could update some invective, right? (laughs) And just make it a little bit more relevant to those in the world, to the unchurched, perhaps. Because more and more people are unchurched. And some of that material was written to people that were religious, that had a form of Christianity. And maybe we just need to customize it a little bit more. We can make some changes. We can remove some obstacles. So that they can, by chance, come to know our Savior. Paul's life and his example is essentially telling us to be relevant in our communities. To take the ancient truth of God and apply it to today's world. On the challenges that people have today. And to as as much as he said it to the church in Philippi, he says this to us. Philippians 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my beloved, and longed-for brethren, my joy and my crown, stand fast in the Lord.